and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias. In a departure from our regular format, we now present the conclusion of our special Christmas ghost story reading of Nikolai Gogol's weird tale of Ukrainian folklore, The V, organised by our good friend Mike Percival Maxwell. And I shall now pass over to Mike. And before we begin, allow me to introduce our readers one last time. Dom Allen. John Casey. Sarah Dovey. Rena Henzi. Mike Percival Maxwell. Sue Savage. And Scott Dorwood. And so, as the sound of dragging footsteps echoes through the dark and musty corridors, we present... The V by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. Part 4. The philosopher was one of those men who, when they have had a good meal, are uncommonly amiable. He lay down on the bench with a pipe in his mouth, looked blandly at all, and expectorated every minute. But as the evening approached, he became more and more pensive. About supper time, nearly the whole company had assembled in order to play craply. This is a kind of game of skittles, in which instead of bowls, long staves are used, and the winner has the right to ride on the back of his opponent. It provided the spectators with much amusement. Sometimes the groom, a huge man, would clamber on the back of the swineherd, who was slim and short and shrunken. Another time, the groom would present his own back, while Dorsch sprung on it, shouting, What a regular ox! Those of the company who were more staid sat by the threshold of the kitchen. They looked uncommonly serious, smoked their pipes, and did not even smile when the younger ones went into fits of laughter over some joke of the groom or spirit. Thomas vainly attempted to take part in the game. A gloomy thought was firmly fixed like a nail in his head. In spite of his desperate efforts to appear cheerful after supper, fear had overmastered his whole being, and it increased with the growing darkness. Now it is time for us to go, Mr. Student, said the grey-haired Cossack, and stood up with Dorosh. Let us betake ourselves to our work. Thomas was conducted to the church in the same way as on the previous evening. Again he was left alone, and the door bolted behind him. As soon as he found himself alone, he began to feel in the grip of his fears. He again saw the dark pictures of the saints in their gilt frames, and the black coffin, which stood menacing and silent in the middle of the church. Oh, never mind, he said to himself. I am over the first shock, the first time I was frightened, but now I am not so at all. No, no, not at all. He quickly went into a stall, drew a circle round him with his finger, uttered some prayers and formulas for exorcism, and then began to read the prayers for the dead in a loud voice, and with a fixed resolution not to look up from the book nor take notice of anything. He did so for an hour, and began to grow a little tired. He cleared his throat and drew his snuff-box out of his pocket, but before he had taken a pinch he looked nervously towards the coffin. A sudden chill shot through him. The witch was already standing before him on the edge of the circle and had fastened her green eyes upon him. He shuddered, looked down at the book and began to read his prayers and exorcisms aloud. 
Yet, all the while, he was aware how her teeth chattered and how she stretched out her arms to seize him. But when he cast a hasty glance towards her, he saw that she was not looking in his direction, and it was clear that she could not see him. Then she began to murmur in an undertone, and terrible words escaped her lips, words that sounded like the bubbling of boiling pitch. The philosopher did not know their meaning, but he knew that they signified something terrible and were intended to counteract his exorcisms. After she had spoken, a stormy wind arose in the church, and there was a noise like the rushing of many birds. He heard the noise of their wings and claws as they flapped against and scratched at the iron bars of the church windows. There were also violent blows on the church door, as if someone was trying to break it in pieces. The philosopher's heart beat violently. He did not dare to look up, but continued to read the prayers without a pause. At last, there was heard in the distance the shrill sound of a cock's crow. The exhausted philosopher stopped and gave a great sigh of relief. Those who came to release him found him more dead than alive. He had leant his back against the wall and stood motionless, regarding them, without any expression in his eyes. They were obliged almost to carry him to the house. He then shook himself, asked for and drank a quart of brandy. He passed his hand through his hair and said, There are all sorts of horrors in the world, and such dreadful things happen that... Here he made a gesture, as though to ward off something. All who heard him bent their heads forward in curiosity, even a small boy who ran on everyone's errand stood by with his mouth wide open. Just then, a young woman in a close-fitting dress passed by. She was the old cook's assistant and very coquettish. She always stuck something in her bodice by way of ornament, a ribbon or a flower, or even a piece of paper if she could find nothing else. Good day, Thomas, she said as she saw the philosopher. Dear me! What has happened to you? She exclaimed, striking her hands together. What is it, you silly creature? Good heavens, you've grown quite grey. Yes, so he has, said Spirit, regarding him more closely. You have grown as grey as our old Yavtuk. When the philosopher heard that, he hastened into the kitchen, where he had noticed on the wall a dirty three-cornered piece of looking-glass. In front of it hung some forget-me-nots, evergreens and a small garland, a proof that it was the toilette glass of the young coquette. With alarm, he saw that it actually was as they had said. His hair was quite grizzled. He sank into a reverie. At last, he said to himself, I will go to the colonel, tell him all, and declare that I will read no more prayers. He must send me back at once to Kiev. With this intention, he turned towards the doorsteps of the colonel's house. The colonel was sitting motionless in his room. His face displayed the same hopeless grief which Thomas had observed on it in his first arrival, only the hollows in his cheeks had deepened. It was obvious that he took very little or no food. A strange paleness made him look almost as though made of marble. 
good day, he said, as he observed Thomas standing cap in hand at the door. Well, how are you getting on? All right? Uh, yes, sir. All right, sir. Oh, such hellish things are going on that one would like to rush away as far as one's feet can carry one. How so? Your daughter, sir. When one considers the matter, she is, of course, of noble descent. No one can dispute that. But don't be angry, and may God grant her eternal rest. Very well. What about her? She is in league with the devil. She inspires one with such dread that all prayers are useless. Pray! Pray! It was not for nothing that she sent for you. My dove was troubled about her salvation, and wished to expel all evil influences by means of prayer. Oh, I swear, gracious sir, it is beyond my power. Pray, pray! There is only one night more. You are doing a Christian work, and I will reward you richly. However great your rewards may be, I will not read the prayers any more, sir. Listen, philosopher. I will not allow any objections. In your seminary you may act as you like, but here it won't do. If I have you knouted, it will be somewhat different to the rector's canings. Do you know what a strong canchuk is? Uh, of course I do. A, a number of them together are insupportable. Yes, I think so too. But you don't know yet how hot my fellows can make it. The colonel sprang up, and his face assumed a fierce, despotic expression, betraying the savagery of his nature, which had only been temporarily modified by grief. After the first flogging, they pour on brandy and then repeat it. Go away and finish your work. If you don't obey, you won't be able to stand again, and if you do, you will get a thousand ducats. That is a devil of a fellow, thought the philosopher to himself, and went out. One can't trifle with him. But wait a while, my friend. I will escape you so cleverly that even your hands can't find me. He determined, under any circumstances, to run away, and only waited till the hour after dinner arrived, when all the servants were accustomed to take a nap on the hay in the barn, and to s'more and puff so loudly that it sounded as if machinery had been set up there. At last the time came. Even Yavtush stretched himself out in the sun and closed his eyes. Tremblingly, and on tiptoe, the philosopher stole softly into the garden, whence he thought he could escape more easily into the open country. The garden was generally so choked up with weeds that it seemed admirably adapted for such an attempt. With the exception of a single path used by the people of the house, the whole of it was covered in cherry trees, elder bushes, and tall heath thistles with fibrous red buds. All these trees and bushes had been thickly overgrown with ivy, which formed a kind of roof. Its tendrils reached to the hedge and fell down on the other side in the snake-like curves among the small wild field flowers. Behind the hedge, which bordered the garden, 
was a dense mass of wild heather, in which it did not seem probable that anyone would care to venture himself, and the strong, stubborn stems of which it seemed likely to baffle any attempt to cut them. As the philosopher was about to climb over the hedge, his teeth chattered, and his heart beat so violently that he felt frighted at it. The skirts of his long cloak seemed to cling to the ground as though they had been fastened to it by pegs. When he had actually got over the hedge, he seemed to hear a shrill voice crying behind him. Whither? Whither? He jumped into the heather and began to run, stumbling over old roots and treading on unfortunate moles. When he had emerged from the heather, he saw that he still had a wild field to cross, behind which was a thick, thorny underwood. This, according to his calculation, must stretch as far as the road leading to Keith, and if he reached it, he would be safe. Accordingly, he ran over the field and plunged into the thorny copse. Every sharp thorn he encountered tore a fragment from his coat. Then he reached a small open space. In the centre of it stood a willow whose branches hung down to the earth, and close by flowed a clear spring bright as silver. The first thing the philosopher did was to lie down and drink eagerly, for he was intolerably thirsty. Splendid water! Oh, this is such a good place to rest in. Oh, better run farther. Perhaps we are being followed, said a voice immediately behind him. Thomas started and turned. Before him stood Yavtush. This devil of a Yavtush, he thought. I should like to seize him by the feet and smash his hangdog face against the trunk of a tree. Why did you go round such a long way? You had much better have chosen the path by which I came. It leads directly by the stable. Besides, it is a pity about your coat. Such splendid cloth. How much did it cost an L? Well, we have had a long enough walk. It is time to go home. The philosopher followed Jabtush in a very depressed state. Now the accursed witch will attack me in earnest, he thought. But what have I really got to fear? Am I not a Cossack? I have read the prayers for two nights already. With God's help, I will get through the third night also. It is plain that the witch must have a terrible load of guilt upon her, else the evil one would not help her so much. Feeling somewhat encouraged by these reflections, he returned to the courtyard and asked Daroche, who sometimes, by the steward's permission, had access to the wine cellar, to fetch him a small bottle of brandy. The two friends sat down before a barn and drank a pretty large one. Suddenly, the philosopher jumped up and said, I want musicians! Bring some musicians! But without waiting for them, he began to dance the tropac in the courtyard. He danced till tea time, and the servants, who, as is usual in such cases, had formed a small circle round him, 
grew at last tired of watching him and went away saying, By heavens, the man can dance. Finally, the philosopher lay down in the place where he had been dancing and fell asleep. It was necessary to pour a bucket of cold water on his head to wake him up for supper. At the meal, he enlarged on the topic of what a Cossack ought to be, and how he should not be afraid of anything in the world. It is time. Let us go. I wish I could put a lighted match to your tongue, thought the philosopher. Then he stood up and said, Let us go. On their way to the church, the philosopher kept looking round him on all sides and tried to start a conversation with his companions, but both Yavtuch and Dorosh remained silent. It was a weird night. In the distance wolves howled continually, and even the barking of the dogs had something unearthly about it. That doesn't sound like wolves howling, but something else remarked Dorosh. Yavtush still kept silence, and the philosopher did not know what answer to make. They reached the church and walked over the old wooden planks, whose rotten condition showed how little the lord of the manor cared about God and his soul. Yavtush and Dorosh left the philosopher alone, as on the previous evenings. There was still the same atmosphere of menacing silence in the church in the centre of which stood the coffin with the terrible witch inside it. I am not afraid. By heavens, I am not afraid, he said. And after drawing a circle round himself as before, he began to read the prayers and exorcisms. An oppressive silence prevailed. The flickering candles filled the church with their clear light. The philosopher turned one page after another, and noticed he was not reading what was in the book. Full of alarm, he crossed himself and began to sing a hymn. This calmed him somewhat, and he resumed his reading, turning the pages rapidly as he did so. Suddenly, in the midst of the sepulchral silence, the iron lid of the coffin sprang open with a jarring noise, and the dead witch stood up. She was this time still more terrible in aspect than at first. Her teeth chattered loudly, and her lips, through which poured a stream of dreadful curses, moved convulsively. A whirlwind arose in the church. The icons of the saints fell on the ground together with the broken window panes. The door was wrenched from its hinges, and a huge mass of monstrous creatures rushed into the church, which became filled with the noise of beating wings and scratching claws. All these creatures flew and crept about, seeking for the philosopher, from whose brain the last fumes of intoxication had vanished. He crossed himself ceaselessly and uttered prayer after prayer, hearing all the time the whole unclean swarm rustling about him and brushing him with the tips of their wings. He had not the courage to look at them. He only saw one uncouth monster standing by the wall with long shaggy hair and two flaming eyes. Over him 
Something hung in the air, which looked like a gigantic bladder covered with countless crabs, claws, and scorpions' stings, and with black clods of earth hanging from it. All these monsters stared about, seeking him, but they could not find him, since he was protected by his sacred circle. Bring the V! Bring the V! cried the witch, calling for the king of the gnomes. A sudden silence followed. The howling of wolves was heard in the distance, and soon heavy footsteps resounded through the church. Thomas looked up furtively, and saw that an ungainly human figure with crooked legs was being led into the church. He was quite covered with black soil, and his hands and feet resembled knotted roots. He trod heavily and stumbled at every step. His eyelids were of enormous length. With terror, Thomas saw that his face was of iron. They led him in by the arms and placed him near Thomas's circle. Raise my eyelids! I can't see anything, said the V in a dull, hollow voice, and they all hastened to help in doing so. Don't look, an inner voice warned the philosopher, but he could not restrain from looking. There he is, exclaimed the V, pointing an iron finger at him, and all the monsters rushed on him at once. Struck dumb with terror, he sank to the ground and died. At that moment there sounded a cock's crow for the second time. The earth spirits had not heard the first one. In alarm, they hurried to the windows and the door to get out as quickly as possible, but it was too late. They all remained hanging as though fastened to the door and the windows. When the priest came, he stood amazed at such a desecration of God's house and did not venture to read prayers there. The church remained standing as it was, with the monsters hanging on the windows and the door. Gradually it became overgrown with creepers, bushes, and wild heather, and no one can discover it now. When the report of this event reached Kiev, and the theologian Kalava heard what a fate had overtaken the philosopher Thomas, he sank for a whole hour into deep reflection. He had greatly altered of late. After finishing his studies, he had become bell-ringer of one of the chief churches in the city, and he always appeared with a bruised nose, because the belfry staircase was in a ruinous condition. "'Have you heard what has happened to Thomas?' said Tiberius Gorobetz, who had become a philosopher and now wore a moustache. "'Yes, God had appointed it so,' answered the bell-ringer. "'Let us go to the alehouse. We will drink a glass to his memory.' The young philosopher, who, with the enthusiasm of a novice, had made such full use of his privileges as a student that his breeches and coat and even his cap reeked of brandy and tobacco, agreed readily to the proposal. He was a fine fellow, Thomas, said the bell ringer, as the limping innkeeper set the third jug of beer before him. A splendid fellow, and lost his life for nothing. 
I know why he perished. Because he was afraid. If he had not feared her, the witch could have done nothing to him. One ought to cross oneself incessantly and spit exactly on her tail, and then not the least harm can happen. I know all about it, for here in Keefe, all the old women in the marketplaces are witches. The bell ringer nodded assent, but being aware that he could not say any more, he got up cautiously and went out, swaying to the right and the left, in order to find a hiding place in the thick steppe grass outside the town. At the same time, in accordance with his old habits, he did not forget to steal an old boot sole which lay on the alehouse bench. And so we reached the end of our tale of the V. Thank you all for listening, and let's thank our marvellous readers one last time. Dom Allen. John Casey. Sarah Dovey. Rena Henzi. Mike Percival Maxwell. Sue Savage. And Scott Dorwood. All that remains now is to say good night, pleasant dreams, and don't forget to check under your bed, for you never know what might be lurking there in the shadows, waiting. <laughs> <laughs>